Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Square One. A podcast where we take our guests back to square one, where they first started their business, so that you can learn from their successes and failures. Brought to you by Isaiah and Malcolm with Omni Home Services. Today we have Brian Hensley with Right at Home. Brian is a good friend of mine. We go way back. Brian is the owner of Right at Home, where they employ about 120, 130 people. Very business-driven. There is some takeaways that Brian's going to share with us about helping people, but also just business numbers. So, Brian, thanks for coming in today, buddy. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. So, Brian, why don't you just go ahead and let's jump in here and tell us about your extreme success at Sewanee State. Just jumping right into the biggest failure then. Yeah. Just tell us about that whole thing, man. Yeah. Well, again, appreciate being here and and love the questions just to get thinking. And I do like, you know, really the way you guys frame that up of, you know, like what's a big failure? Because I think on these podcasts, a lot of times you hear about all the great things people do. But don't get to hear about some of the stuff that like really leads to that. So for me, yeah, uh, just thinking back, one of the biggest parts for me would have been uh, my first semester in college. And I went to Suwannee, University of the South, which uh, does happen to be near Chattanooga. But for me at the time, it was moving from Oklahoma, Texas to go to school there. And, you know, Suwannee is a pretty prestigious school. It's a good one to get into. It uh, takes a lot to really get there. But I, you know, put in everything that I could, got accepted, moved out here for my first semester and immediately bombed my first semester. I think out of the four classes I took, I, I passed one and that was theater. And that, that was that was with a solid C. So, you know, uh, college life uh, really starting out was just a little bit of a big step forward and then a couple steps back for me. So for the average person like myself, well, no shit that's going to happen in college because we're, you know, on party mode. We're doing drugs. We're talking to chicks, whatever it is. But you're a very smart dude and you didn't get involved in that. So tell us, why didn't that work out for you? You know, I think a lot of it was just a little bit of lack of passion and being a little bit unfocused once I got there, you know, like Getting into Swanee was a really big thing for me. I, you know, I, I knew that's where I wanted to go when I was in high school, when I was finishing up. And so I had, you know, that really singular focus of, you know, that's what I want to do. But once I got there, you know, it was kind of met with what I think a lot of people get met with when they get out of high school and get into college, but was just the, well, now what? You know, political science and pre-law was kind of the focus of what I wanted to do, but it wasn't really a motivating enough factor for me to like, stick with it and really focus in on the things I wanted to and partying and and some of those things I didn't really get into, even though Swanee at the time, I think was ranked number two party school in the country. All right. Uh, you know, so like wouldn't think it, but there is plenty of that up there. But uh, it really wasn't my downfall so much as it was, I don't know, online games and just kind of not engaging. So you were asked not to attend the next semester, right? Yeah. So that was one of the interesting things. So Swanee, again, being the way it is, you fill a semester, it's not that you go on academic probation the next semester. For me, they took me aside and just said, you're, you're going to have to leave campus next semester. You're going to take a semester off. And if you want the opportunity to come back, you need to go live somewhere outside of your parents' house, somewhere where you're paying your own rent and doing your own thing. You need to get a full-time job. You need to work for at least six months and have positive reviews from your managers. And if you do all of those things, you have the opportunity to reapply back to Swanee. 
So it wasn't a guaranteed back end. At that point, I had to like resubmit my GPAs. I had to rewrite essays. I had to do all the things to like get reaccepted into school as if it would be, you know, my first semester. And so uh, going through that, it was a little bit of, all right, I know that this was a big thing to me. And I had never had that kind of setback or failure, you know, up to that point. But it was important to me that it be my decision whether or not I went back. And so that's really what my focus came on was I need to do everything I can to prove that like, hey, I do have a seat there if I want. I can go back if I want to. But even if I decide not to, that needs to be my decision. And so that was really the the thing, like take your time off, do your thing. I, I ended up moving to Amarillo, Texas. I uh, got an apartment there, worked for AIG making, I think, $10 an hour, which, you know, 2006, 2007, 18 years old pretty good money for doing what I was doing and reapplied, got reaccepted. And, uh, you know, but at that point it really kind of decided Swanee wasn't where I wanted to go back to, but I still wanted them to reaccept me. And, and once they did, I immediately wrote a letter back saying, thanks for the opportunity. I'm going to be attending elsewhere. But, um, you know, it was still just important to me that I close that door and that it not be closed for me. So what's your biggest learning experience from that? It sounds to me like it would be, you know, like you said, I want to be accepted back, but I'm going to choose not to be here. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it was being at the time when I was told like, hey, you don't get to come back next semester. You got to go take time off. That was like crap. You know, I, I have ruined everything. And uh, but, you know, I really think it was one of the best things for me because that unfocused kind of next step thing is what I was in, you know, coming out and, and getting in to school was like, that was like the be all end all. And then I got there and it's like, well, what next? So taking that time back, you know, really, I think set me up to start thinking a little more long term and, you know, really trying to make more intentional decisions, not just what everybody's telling me is the best decision. You know, I started making some of my own choices at that point. I think it's easy for any of us to go down the road of unfocusedness, whether it's online games or, you know, a number of addictive things in society. But when we do realize that the unfocus really kind of takes your life away, man, good for you for learning that at an early age. So um, tell us about your company right at home. Yeah. So right at home, we uh, started in 2016 here in Chattanooga. Um, I do have a business partner. His name's Ryan Nagel. And shout out. Yeah. And when we uh, were looking to open, you know, staying focused on the community, serving people, bringing a good service that we could really stand behind for all things that were important to us. And so we looked at a few different things that we could really focus on, but right at home and home care service really drew us because we get to focus on a few things. We take care of family members. Uh, we take care of our clients who, mostly speaking, are geriatric uh, individuals who are trying to age in place. Uh, we view that as wherever they call home, whether that's nursing home, independent living, hospitals, stays, uh, or their actual home. But really, you know, our focus was how do we get to engage the community and take care of, you know, not only those individuals, but their families that are around them. You know, how do we help take care of that daughter? How do we help take care of that son? And turn some of those times where, hey, I'm, I'm a caregiver, but now I get to go be a son. And that's real important to give back to families. So, so right at home, we get to do, uh, you know, a lot of that. And, and it comes down to personal care, companion care, uh, or a little bit of the non-medical arm of healthcare. You know, if you need 
home health and hospice or hospital stays or physical therapy. There are all of those activities and individuals, but we're really focused on the other types of daily living, the things that really allow somebody to stay in place. So you guys do the non-medical side. So you're talking about like grocery shopping, helping uh, get dressed, daily chores, things like that, right? Yeah. So transportation services, bathing, dressing, meal preparation, doctor visits. Um, and just companionship. And just right? companionship. I always think of our uh, second client we ever signed on, and she's a really good example of this. And she's still a client of ours seven years later. But uh, when I went and sat down with her, she just said, Brian, I'm just tired of hanging out with old people. And she was 82 at the time. And, uh, you know, her her circle of friends were, uh, you know, the people she went to Sunday school with. It was uh, the people she used to go to dinner with. I can't any longer. It's people who are no longer being able to give transportation. So in one way, we're able to help some of her friends regain their lives back. But really, for what she needed, she wanted somebody that was going to go to the mall with her, somebody to take her to get her hair done, somebody to go to the occasional movie. Uh, because she didn't really have that in her life and she had lost it with a lot of her friends. So we started with her doing about three, four hours of service a week. Just, you know, let's go to church. Let's go get your hair done. And we still do about three, four hours a week with her. But uh, the other side of it for her, though, was she didn't have a lot of family to lean on in those instances. And so uh, she was looking at it as I want to know when I get to that place that I need somebody to be here for, you know, more service, somebody who can really help with those like bathing activities. Activity. Somebody who's going to uh, help me with my medication, get me to doctor's appointments. You know, I want to know who those people are going to be. And so she wanted to start building that relationship with us. So for now, we're with companionship. But when she needs us more, we'll, we'll be there at that time. So, Brian, if we can for a second, kind of roll the clock back a little bit. Yeah. You told us earlier that you went from Swanee to AIG. And I'm interested to hear from AIG till the time of ending up at Right at Home. What was your entrance into that realm? Did you know a person that was in that industry and that kind of floated you in there? Or what did that look like for you? Yeah, a lot of things in between, I guess. Um, so the AIG stint was only about six months. So that's not really <laughs> super relevant outside of, uh, you know, that kind of getting back in uh, to Swanee and things. But uh, but after that, I ended up going to Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, studied theology. And in that time, one of the things I did was work for hospice and uh, did mostly chaplain type work. So bereavement services with families or caregivers or, or whoever. But I, you know, got a little bit of glimpse on that side of the world. Uh, also in that time, had a great grandmother who had Alzheimer's and my mother and grandmother moved her from Texas uh, out to Tennessee, took care of her. And I really saw through that experience, you know, the toll it took on them, even though they were super willing to be there and do it, you know, they didn't really have the services of something like right at home. And so those experiences. And when I came to Chattanooga, it was really like, hey, I want to do nonprofit work and service work, that kind of thing. So I, I got plugged into United Way early on and then eventually started working with the Boy Scouts. But um, at the point of like really trying to decide, OK, I want to step out, do my own business, figure out what the next thing is. You know, we looked at a few things and right at home came up to the top of the list eventually. And so there were the heartstring issues of I can see how this would help my family if we had had this service. Right. I can see where it fits in. It wasn't completely foreign to me, but but overall, yeah, I mean, it pretty new industry. Uh, healthcare is not what my background was in leading up to that. You know, you and I have been friends for a long time. And I think it probably hit when you just said 
your service is great in a house because you can let that son or daughter or whoever be a son again. And, you know, my dad's like, I don't want to impose on my kids to wipe my ass, you know, or whatever it is. But I think the fact that your son or your daughter or family member, you can be a son again. That's super cool. Um, so let's talk about... Isaiah asked, like, how'd you get down that road? But let's talk just business numbers 101. You guys chose this because of money, right? So tell us, why'd you franchise? What's the pros and cons to that? And like, out of everything in the world, why would two young dudes go for in-home care? And it's all about the numbers. So tell us what made you uh, pull the trigger on that. Well, a big part of it was like barrier to entry. You know, franchising wasn't an interest at the time. It wasn't something I was familiar with. It kind of had a negative reaction towards franchising in terms of like, you know, if you're not buying a million dollar McDonald's, I, I don't know, they're probably $2 million now, but if you're not buying a million dollar McDonald's, that's, you know, pretty much guaranteed to work. Uh, you know, there's a lot of in between of we're just going to rake you across the coals, take everything you have. And, you know, you, you might have an opportunity to make some money, but it doesn't work out for most people. And, you know, that. And and so at the time, Forbes had put out an article for, I think it was 100 franchises under $250,000 to start um, was kind of the number. And so looked into it and right at home was number one on that list and been number one on that list for three or four years. So, you know, that was first thing of like, okay, here's an industry that I'm a little interested in. I don't know a ton about, but the numbers kind of line up with what we're looking at doing. So let's uh, go a little deeper into it. And a lot of the things I liked about right at home and, and the franchising in general is for the industry we're in, again, I don't come from healthcare. I don't, I don't have that background. So having, uh, you know, a training program in place, right at home had the, the most extensive training program of any of the franchises we looked at. They had great reputation, but they also, uh, their discovery process was really transparent in terms of they encourage you to talk to five to 10 owners. Uh, they give you a list of every owner in the system, call them, talk to whoever, get their feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, I think we ended up talking to 45 or 50 owners <laughs> between Jeez. between the two of us. And that was phone calls, emails, text messages, any way we could get in contact with, with folks. And, and we did, you know, regionally, uh, we focused on some people nationally and then state specific. But really through that process, we consistently heard back from people that, you know, the support structure behind the system was really good. That corporate, you know, while not always perfect, was actively figuring things out. So those boxes checked off. And also just from the number side, part of the reason that, you know, it made that list on Forbes wasn't just price to start, but also the ability to, you know, build a profitable business that's going to have good, decent returns and very clear franchising fees and royalty fees and marketing fees that are built into the system that are, uh, I've read a number of franchise disclosure agreements at this point outside of just our system. And, and I can tell you there are some that are, uh, you know, less friendly to the franchisee. But Right at Home really checked a lot of those boxes. Um, the other thing for us was also just looking at, you know, once we got to that point, it was, uh, is there an open territory in Chattanooga? And we were a little surprised to see that it was open. But when it comes to healthcare and things specifically with franchising, like it does make a lot of sense. And like, are you going to be able to make profitable decisions, but also are you going to be able to stay within licensing and keep up with regulations because it's state and federal regulations that can come through and hit a lot of that stuff. Would you have any advice for somebody that's looking at a franchise? I think the biggest thing is 
pay attention to the numbers that come through in that franchise agreement and validate them. You know, I don't know how familiar you guys are looking at franchise agreements, but, you know, there's some federal regulations on really what they have to provide. And it's kind of laid out in a standard way. And one of those areas is I think it's item 19. I think it's the only optional item. And it's also one that they can, uh, you know, I would say manipulate a little bit. But item 19 really looks at financials of current running businesses or historic numbers and just making sure that that stuff is really accurate. And a big part of that is is the franchise willing to let you talk to their current franchisees? Because if they are, that's probably a good sign that they're not trying to really pull one over. You know, you're able to, if they're giving you a list of people to contact, like contact these three people, I would be a little wary if they're giving you a specific. Yeah. Is that a thing for franchising? Do they usually give out like other franchisees info and encourage them to call or no? I don't know what exactly the requirements are, but I get the impression that they have to open it up on some level for people to be able to contact. But I have since seen it where it's like, here are three people you can contact and don't forget we have a non-disclosure so you can't contact anyone else. And I would say that's probably the biggest red flag to say, okay, well, I can walk away from (laughs) this. You know what? That's a takeaway right there, dude. I don't have much experience with franchising and I didn't know like that's a thing. So that's a super good nugget. Appreciate that. And I don't know that franchising is the best thing in every industry, but I would say, you know, if it's something like healthcare and you don't have a healthcare background, franchising is a really good way to get a quick education. And, you know, for us, the biggest benefit we have seen is other owners. We are able to reach out and plug into mentors and people that, you know, we're able to look at and say, I want to be like that business that's doing, you know, $10 million a year and that owner's making great money and his staff is making great money and they've been around for, you know, 15 years and being able to like pick up the phone and call that guy and just say, Hey, can I pick your brain? And and with system we're in, it's very open in that way of, yeah, I mean, we're not competing against each other. So let's, let's open it up because all ships rise and we're only going to get better together. And, you know, that, that is a unique thing that I think franchising does open up in the right system of, you know, just, I don't know, radical transparency on what's working, what's not working, how are your books, how are your staff, Um, you know, it's hard to build up that trust, you know, really outside of those kind of things. Brian, we've gotten into the meat quite a bit about the business, which is great. Thanks for giving us some insight on franchises and kind of what they look like as a general overview. We'd love to talk a little bit more now about you, right? And morning routine, You have one? Yeah. So uh, it's a question I generally hate because uh, I hear the stories. uh, I I don't know. Malcolm's probably the person I can use here of, you know, I'm up at 4.30 a.m. running 12 miles and and I've had my (laughs) I've had my yogurt and I sniffed some oatmeal, but there were too many carbs in it. So I got the one percent I needed. And then by 5.30, I decided I would have a cup of coffee because it's a cheat day. You know, that that's the kind of morning <laughs> that, that I imagine most successful people have um, before they even get to business. So I suffer from something called hypersomnia, which is a little bit like narcolepsy. And, and my wife always makes fun of me a little bit about it because I'm just always a little nappy. I'm just kind of tired all the time. But it is something that I've kind of dealt with most of my life. And I, I didn't really get diagnosed until a few years ago, but it really did like shine some insight onto some things, even like the college thing of like, yeah, you know, being able to stay awake during class is pretty dang important uh, for <laughs> for trying to get through stuff and stay focused. But um, so my morning routine has really become 
being sure to like set alarms and stick to them because a big part of hypersomnia is like coming out of what they call like sleep drunkenness. So it's just hard to like wake up and get going. So my biggest thing is like get out of bed. Um, I shower every morning, brush my teeth, listen to audiobooks, podcasts, just anything I can do to like really start getting my brain, you know, firing. You know, it's normally straight out of bed and straight in the shower for me kind of thing. Like that's how I get my day started and can really get going. Um, and then just having like that set aside time because I know like morning time is not going to be my most productive time. So that's really the time that I need to like, A, get my brain going, B, think through my day and get set up for that stuff. But I know probably closer to like nine o'clock, nine thirty is when I'm going to really be a- awake and able to like really start focusing on things. So I don't know. I think for me, like kind of a matter of self-care over the last couple of years, it's been like recognizing that fact and not pushing for the 6 a.m., 7 a.m. start time because even when I was, you know, can force myself to do it and okay at doing it, I don't know that I function really well throughout the rest of the day. So maintaining my calendar and my schedule in a way that, you know, I'm not having high impact activities, you know, that first part of the day, uh, you know, really helps me be successful throughout the rest of it. And again, you know, sometimes there are the 730 meetings that just have to happen at 730 and you get up and you go and you do it or be ready for it. But for me, yeah, it's just really trying to maintain that first couple hours so that I can, you know, get going. Sure. Another question uh, it says, give us a big piece of marketing advice. You got something super unique on here and it says, don't say no for someone else. Tell us about that, dude. Yeah. Um, I think that is one of the biggest traps that marketing uh, can fall into. And that can be true of if you're doing online stuff or TV ads or, or whatever else. But I think really just like the core marketing when you're talking to people and trying to get them to say yes to whatever your idea is. The first thing to do in that is just asking the question. And home care specifically, I'll, I will say, you know, this relates back to us pretty heavy. Uh, you know, when we first started, we would go around and, and market and do all the, you know, we'd sponsor events, we would set up tables, we would do the radio ads, and, we, and then we'd go talk to case managers who are actually discharging folks from our communities. And they just, you know, the first thing we'd hear is like, oh, well, it's great you guys do all that stuff, but nobody can afford your services. And it's like, well, you're, you're saying no for a family that needs help. You see they need help. You know they need help. But you're assuming that they're not going to be able to afford it, that their kids aren't going to be able to afford it, their grandkids, their family, or whoever else. Like, you're automatically saying no for that individual. And, and it really stuck out in our minds of like, okay, we need to stop approaching and advertising to people who are already saying no on behalf of uh, the clients and families that we need to help. And really that's led, you know, even into our marketing for caregivers and our marketing for nonprofit events and that kind of stuff is like, we're not going to assume that anybody doesn't have the capability to use our services or already knows about our services or whatever else. So, uh, yeah, you know, just not saying no on behalf of somebody else and really pushing your message out there to make sure that they understand it and have access to it when they need it. So we touched on this with one of our last guests to Matt Carlson about hiring. You have a lot of people that work within your company and hiring is a tricky subject, really, no matter what industry that you're in. Do you look for any intangibles when you are looking to bring people aboard as far as being care providers or whether they're on your core operations team, no matter what that might look like? How do you go about selecting who you're going to hire? Yeah. So a lot of that comes back to core value kind of activities for us of 
if we're hiring a caregiver who's going to go take care of family, you know, one of our big messages is we are employee first and client second. And the reason is we have employees all over town and a couple hundred different locations, you know, every month or, or whatever, and, and trying to make their way through that. And it's impossible for us to be at all those places. So, but what we can do is impact the folks who are going to all of those places. And so we talk to our caregivers at that level of, you know, there are probably easier ways to make money if you don't have a heart for this kind of work and a passion for the the kind of stuff that we do. But if you do have a heart for it and a passion for it, there's nothing else you can do that'll satisfy that. And um, so we really focus on that kind of stuff. And from an office standpoint and an administrative standpoint, it is really a lot of the same kind of things. Like, do you have a willingness to be inconvenienced? Because we work in a people business and people are really inconvenient. So if you're not willing to be inconvenienced, <laughs> probably not the right job for you. Um, you're asking people when they come <laughs> on board, are you willing to be inconvenienced? Yeah. That is awesome. Well, you know, I think of one of our first characters, her name was Sherry Keith. And, you know, when we would get a call from a family that was in a hospital and, you know, mom had a fall yesterday and we need help. And it's, you know, 1 a.m. And I pick up the phone and I call Sherry. I know that Sherry's going to roll over, grab her phone and answer it because she knows that giving care to people isn't always a convenient thing. Like people don't plan to have a fall. People don't plan to get sick. And so when those calls come in and I pick up the phone and call Sherry at 1 a.m., she's not going to feel super convenienced in that moment, but she's going to answer the phone and she's going to say, where do you need me to go and how can I get there to take care of them? And that's pretty in incredible that anybody's willing to do that. And we have a bunch of people willing to do that. And so... Does Sherry need a job? <laughs> I mean, if she's willing to answer the phone at 1 a.m. and go to work, I love her already. Sherry is uh, retired and moved down south to be with the grandkid, but um, willingness to be inconvenienced. It's one of those like core values for us that if you're not willing to do that, it's hard for us to really engage. It's um, one of Malcolm and I's friends, Christina, you know, which, shout out. <laughs> yeah. One of her uh, things that she came up with at one point that we have adopted in love is like just a rage for mastery. You know, we don't expect people to come in and know everything and be perfect at it and do it exactly the way we know we want to do it. We hope they'll come in and improve it. Uh, but really, we want them to have like that rage for mastery and, you know, be willing to like come up with solutions and not just identify problems. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff is what we're always really trying to engage with. Brian, you said core values a couple of times. Um, we've recently, not recently, I guess a year or two ago, started EOS, like uh, Entrepreneurial Operating System. So one of the things that we didn't realize is we didn't even have our core values. We've been operating for years and like, what are we trying to operate around? It ended up, uh, once we created our core values, what we're really strong about or what we really want to thrive to get to, it turned out we can put those core values on paper and put them on the employee analyzer and see if those people align with the company values. It was actually a very good tool for us because it shows us like, hey, you might be a good person or whatever, but this is just not lining up to be a good fit. And typically turns out that that wasn't a fit. But tell us one of the first things you would advise somebody to do when starting a business is to define your core values. Why is that? Yeah, um, I think it's really hard to do <laughs> in 
any kind of service, if, if you don't really know why you're doing it and, and the things that you're willing to do to get it done, you know, like the willingness to be inconvenienced, I guess, is kind of an example. Like, are you willing to be inconvenienced or not? Like, you might be capable of doing something, but are you willing to even do it? And, and I think like core values help define some of that. And for us in an industry where it's so heartstring attached, you know, we're taking care of people in their, their last days a lot of times. And we're taking care of daughters who are on the phone crying with us because dad has had issues. And, and like, you know, in those moments, we're taking care of those families and, and that stuff. And so it's a very heartstring driven industry. But we are still a business. We still have to be able to look at numbers. We still have to be able to make a profit. We still, you know, I think of the families we take care of, but I also think of the families of the 130 employees we have. And we need to be able to sit down and look at things like, hey, what, what's our revenue? What's our profit margin? What's, uh, you know, our recruitment turnover like? What's our, and, and ask questions like that to somebody who maybe just hung up the phone with a caregiver uh, who sat with somebody in their last minutes. And part of the core value piece for us is like, we're going to go from really emotional conversations sometimes into really number driven conversations. But when we're doing those number driven conversations, we're not questioning core value stuff around it. Like, hey, you made that decision and we're losing money on it is sometimes a business decision. And the hard issue is, well, we had to lose money on it because that's how we were going to take care of somebody. And, and that can be okay, but that can't always be the conversation. Like sometimes we just need to look at it. So for us, it's like, okay, if we're talking through our KPIs, we're already coming at it from an assumption that the core value stuff and the hard issues have already been checked. Like if those things aren't checked, then we don't need to be having any conversations around the business. But if we check those, set those aside, now we can really just focus on the metrics of the business and how we can, you know, grow it in the, in the right ways. Nice. So, um, obviously this is a really niche industry. So on the outside looking in, there might not be full awareness on all the inner workings. Anything else that you'd like to share with us about that? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think home care for us, a lot of times, you know, we're the first entry point for a lot of people when, when they start realizing they, they might need some help. And we really want to encourage people like, if you're not really sure if we're the right fit or if it's somebody else, still call us. We have great relationships in the community. We really pride ourselves on knowing who provides top quality care, whether that's home health, hospice, nursing homes, hospitals, assisted livings, rehabs, whatever might be, because we work hand in hand with those folks all the time. And we want to work with people who are also giving good service. Um, so if you're, you know, I would just say like for folks who aren't sure maybe where the fit is or what they need, because I think a lot of times people think, wow, I, you know, mom needs a nurse to come in every day to check up on her. And, and the reality is finding a nurse to come in and check up on somebody is near impossible unless you have way too much money and just hire that person privately because the home health and hospitals are also paying those folks lots and lots of money. But really what they probably need is a personal care attendant to come in a few times a week and maybe a nurse to come in once a week or, or whatever the thing might be. But we can help navigate those conversations. Um, we don't do a ton with insurance, but we work a lot with long-term care policies. And so I would say if folks have that kind of information that they're trying to figure out, hey, mom, grandma, whoever has been paying on this thing for 20 years, uh, how do we start seeing some benefit out of it? Give us a call. Um, you know, we're happy to like walk through that paperwork and show you really where it can fit in, whether that's with us or again, somebody else. Nice. 
Brian, I just want to uh, shine some light. Now that you say like hospitals and doctor's offices and hospice and all that, maybe I'm overthinking it, but you said that a lot of the team members, well, they experience death, their client dies. Does that bring any kind of complexity to management? I mean, it, I would assume it has to, right? Yeah, it does. And, you know, when I think about really my role right at home at this point, I think a lot about our admin staff who is then taking care of those folks because having really that right people who, again, you know, we gotta, we've got to be able to drive some revenue and some hours and some of those things, but also people who care about that group of people of, hey, or, you know, to these caregivers who are having those instances of, hey, are you okay? Is there anything you need? We do some support groups and that kind of stuff as well for caregivers. We also uh, do time offs and, and things. But the other side is even with our admin office, you know, we do have to step back sometimes and, and just say, it's been a rough couple of weeks. We have, you know, lost several clients. And, and sometimes that's a, a stressor in terms of like revenues down a little bit right, now. Right. But it's also the stressor of somebody just can't died. really talk about that as much because we've been, you know, I, I think back uh, about a year and a half ago, we had three clients pass away in a span of a week and all of them were receiving 24 seven care from us, which, you know, we bill hourly. So 168 hour client is, is a, is a big client for us. And, uh, and all three of them passed away within about a week and a half. We had had all of those clients for a year and a half, two years and three years. So they weren't folks who were short term, they'd been with us for a long time. And, and so that, that does a couple things. One, it's on the admin office side, like these are families we know. They're people we talk to. The caregiver side, it's they've been spending 40 hours a week, some of them with these families for years. And, you know, you're just kind of part of the family at that point. But uh, then the other side of all of that is now there's, you know, let's say a team of eight caregivers per individual. Now there's 24 people who had full-time work who are now not working because, you know, the clients pass away. So yeah, I mean, it adds to it, but for us, it's really, you know, do we have the admin staff that's able to really focus on those situations when they come up? Because the emotional side of it does <laughs> weigh it down a little bit. That is, uh, <laughs> that's some complex issues. I hope that you and anybody out there that does a similar service um, gets a pat on the back because that can't be easy. So thank you guys. Uh, anybody out there that does that type of work. Um, our name of the podcast is Square One. So take us back, Brian, to where it all began, whether it's in the college dorm room playing games or if it's the beginning of researching franchises or whatever it is. Take us back to when you were younger you and what you would tell yourself. I think if I could go, let's just go back to starting a ride at home and really that time. And, um, you know, I think we we did a good job of kind of defining roles of who was going to do what and, you know, who we needed to get hired immediately to fill in certain activities and some of those things. But it was probably a couple of years before we got really serious on tracking KPIs. And and some of that was, you know, again, I have a business partner. So some of it was like, well, there's two of us. Let's not worry about it. Like, you know, we know what's going on. We're talking constantly. We're looking at it. But, you know, a few years after that, sitting down looking, trying to really tell that story of what had happened was a little bit of the catalyst for us to say, okay, we need 
to drill in on the, you know, really the number side and the KPIs and figure out what we're tracking. Even if it's writing our own names in front of who's responsible for always being, you know, even if there's two of us, let's figure it out and write who's in charge of it. But I think just being way more intentional on that, um, you know, what gets tracked gets done. It's kind of the, the mindset. And we saw big impacts when we really got better at that. So, yeah, that would be my big, biggest thing. So are you saying, would you tell yourself to better track KPIs or to put somebody's name next to a task? I would say better track KPIs. Or track KPIs at all. How many of us start a business and we don't even do that? <laughs> right. right. Like track your KPIs and know who's responsible for tracking it is really the big thing there. I love that. We're going to conclude with a couple of book recommendations. I see your notes here. You got a shit ton of recommendations, but hit us with a couple of book recommendations. For a new business owner, a current thing? like Sure, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah business-wise, I think two big books that probably have made a big impact for me. Uh, the E-Myth was one that's really great. I tend to tell anyone who's starting a business, if they haven't read it, they need to read it and try to internalize some of it. Um, and then the other one is Profit First. When I really think through our tracking KPIs, tracking our numbers and, you know, making a, a good impact, not only in, you know, growing the business, but also taking home money and being able to provide for a family and do all the other things that I want to do as a business owner. Uh, you know, really focusing on those things the right way is important. And Profit First is real easy concept, but it does kind of turn everything on its, you know, traditional knowledge of how you should be budgeting a business. So those would probably be the top two. When I read Profit First, I'm like, man, I'm an idiot. Like, yeah. How did I not focus on this? Did you feel the same way? Yeah. You know, I went through a phase when we first started, uh, you know, I probably went 12 or 14 months with just no pay. I went from being paid to no pay. And that was a rough season of business ownership. Uh, I would say Profit First was really kind of the catalyst that broke us out of that. And you know, I went from making no money to making some money and that immediately felt really good. <laughs> and it didn't take long for a lot of other things to start self-correcting really quickly behind that. So yeah, it felt stupid, but <laughs> eventually felt better about it. Brian, before we wrap up here, I know that we talked earlier during your morning routine portion about audiobooks and podcasts that you listen to. Any words of uh, wisdom or recommendations that you have there? Yeah. Um, so currently on Audible, I've been listening to the Dune series. and Nice. And then there's Dune Messiah, and now I'm into Children of Dune. So it's been a little obsessive on, on, <laughs> on that. Um, podcast, I, I love like How I Made My First Million is always a good one. Uh, how This Was Built is a good one. I enjoy those. Also, if it's a morning routine one, Small Town Murder is one I listen to, which is not Anything I would recommend to anyone who's not like in, into kind of comedy and true crime, but it's one that's just, I don't know, I think it helped carry me through COVID <laughs> a little bit. There you go. Out of what you listen to or read, whatever, how much of it is fictional? Because I feel like there's a portion of us that need to like turn the learning brain off sometimes and just veg out on a murder mystery or, you know... Uh, Moby Dick. That's a bad recommendation because that was a terrible long book. <laughs> you know, something When's like... When's the last time you read a fiction book? <laughs> uh, listen to a fiction book. I, I, I try to get them in there, man. I, I never really listened to or uh, read old classical books like The Old Man in the Sea or something, but it's, a, it's good books. Yeah. So every rare once in a while, I'll get into that. How about you? Uh, most of the time, it's more... Uh, 
podcasts for me. I, I don't do a, a ton of audible uh, listening usually. And and part of it is kind of like this Dune thing that I'm into. Like, I know how obsessive I become on like uh, fantasy and fiction books. I don't know what that is. Tell me. What? I, d- d- don't look at me like that. What is Dune? <laughs> I'm just have to Google it. You're just gonna have to yeah. Google it. I, I I don't I don't know how to answer that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, my buddy, we appreciate you coming on and talking to us. I know your time's valuable, and uh, thanks. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to Square One Podcast, a podcast brought to you by Omni Home Services, where we rep Chattanooga Home Inspector, Nuclear Pest Control, Elevate Home Staging and Design, and Radon Eraser. We release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode.